The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Matthew chapter 23, verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So if whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by the heavens swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Well, today, as mentioned, we continue in the Sermon on the Mount and the Gospel of Matthew and come to one, another one of Jesus' great principles that he means to teach his disciples. He's teaching these great principles for, uh, that should be characteristics of all followers of Jesus, for all Christian disciples of Jesus. And so Jesus here will disciple his, his followers and instruct them and instruct us by way of reading his word that we should be people of our word. We should be people that have integrity of our word. We're to be truthful. We are to be honest. We're to be full of integrity and credibility. I mentioned last week that the Pharisees were the sort of people that loved to live below the line of Scripture. People who lived below the line of Scripture were people that said, what is the most I can do? What can I get away with without crossing the line? What is the most that I can do without, without really sinning? Or even in some circumstances, what's the least I can do and still feel that I am in God's favor and being obedient to Him. The Pharisees and the scribes, who Jesus often confronted in His teaching, uh, they had ingenious ways of twisting Scripture, the law of God, the evil ways of thinking below the line of Scripture. They found ways to, to harbor bitterness in their heart uh, for, for others. They found ways to, uh, to, to lust after others. And in the, when they harbored bitterness, they said, well, I haven't killed anybody. And Jesus would say, but if you have hatred in your own heart, you have, you have committed the same sin. They found innocent ways to, with their eyes to lust after women, another woman desiring another man's wife, because they would say, well, I haven't cheated. I haven't kissed her. I haven't had an affair with her. And so it's innocent, really. And Jesus would say, if you harbor bitterness, if you fail to love an enemy, if you lust in your heart, you're just as guilty. And so when it comes to breaking vows or lying, or dishonesty. They found a way to feel innocent by getting around uh, breaking a vow, or being dishonest, as we see here. And so in order to understand the kind of righteousness that Jesus desires, he shows us a, a new attitude for the integrity of our word. He shows us a new practice, and he shows us a new hope for the integrity of our word. And so let's look at that in this passage. First, what is the, what is the perspective, what is the attitude that Jesus desires for us to have when it comes to our word. Look at the attitude of the scribes. 
Look at the attitude of the Pharisees when it comes to the integrity of our word. What is, what is an oath for them? Well, an oath is, is when you bear witness to the truth and promise that it is true. It's when you say, I swear. Right? We, we know that terminology. When someone says, you promise to do this, and you say, I swear. And oaths were not only permitted in the Old Testament, they were commanded. And there was a popular tendency at the time to, to craft ways to the measure the seriousness of a promise, to measure the seriousness of an oath. And it was serious, the more serious, the more close it was to the name of God. Right? So we know that when, when a conversation that happens, we say, do you promise? We say, yes. And we say, do you swear? And we say, well, I cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. And we say, whoa, they're really serious. And we say, well, no, do you really promise? And we say, what, what is the thing that really trumps it all? What is the thing that we could say that would get the person to really realize we're telling the truth? We say, I swear to God. I swear to God. So we do it even today. There were crafty ways even then, particularly then, they were, they were, they were masters of it, uh, to swear by things that would tell you how serious the oath would be if you broke it. For them, if you, if you swore by the temple and broke your vow, it wasn't a big deal. But if you swore by the gold in the temple, which was extremely valuable, then it was a very big deal. If you swore by the altar and you were found to be lying, it wasn't that bad. Everyone kind of brushed it off. But if you swore by the sacrifice on the altar, then it was very bad. And that's what these passages bring out. Pharisees and the scribes were concerned with an external kind of righteousness, an external kind of righteousness, not the kind of righteousness that Jesus desired. And yet we should not too quickly condemn the Pharisees because we look at this practice and we think, well, well that's absurd. How silly is that? That they could swear by certain things and, and you could break their promise and nothing would be bad about it, but if you swore by certain things, then it was really bad. And as we mentioned, we do the same thing. We know that flow of our conversation where we say, I promise, and they say, how do I know you're telling the truth? And I say, I swear, and we, then we swear to God, and, and somehow over time there's even become something in our minds even greater than God to swear by, right? I swear by my, I swear by what? My daughter's life. I swear on my mother's grave. And so somehow we even have like greater things that we place even more importance than swearing by God. We swear by people who we love. There's a lot of things to swear by. We swear by so many things. The 90s music group, All for One, even swore by the moon and the stars <laughs> in the sky. Somebody gets that. Uh, give it a minute. You'll, you'll get it. You'll have the song in your head all week. Um, Jesus says what? He says... What good does it do that you swear by one thing over another? What good, what difference does it make by swearing by one thing over another? So you swear by the altar and not the gift, but isn't the gift greater than the altar that, that is important? And you, you, the gold of the temple, isn't the temple greater than the gold? For God sits enthroned in the temple. And what about the heaven versus the earth? Doesn't God equally govern both the heavens and the earth? And why is one more important to God than another? And why do you swear by your head, he says. Can you really make the hair on your head change from black to white? We'd love to change it from white back to black, but we can't. We aren't in control of our own bodies. We aren't in control of heaven or earth. We aren't in control of, of the altar or the throne of God. And this is the point, and, and it must change our attitude. And this is why Jesus wants it to be an attitude change, that God is the creator of everything. That God governs and sustains everything. 
And therefore, there's nowhere you can go, there is nothing that you can swear by that is hidden from God. There is nothing that you can swear by that is outside the realm, the perfect uh, realm and, and governance of God who rules over it in perfect authority. The throne, the temple, the heavens or the earth, or even by our city, or even by your very own body. You're not in control of any of it. God is saying, it's all mine. What difference does it make that you swear by one thing over another? To swear by even the littlest thing, you're still swearing by me because I own it all. Heaven and earth and the city, the temple, the gold, the altar, the very hairs on your head. What do they all have in common? One thing. They all belong to God. We swear by certain things and not by other things because we think that some things are more sacred than other things. Right? There's sacred things and then there's, there's common things. There's everyday things. And therefore we feel excused, but God says it's all sacred because it's all mine. Everything is sacred. Even the smallest, most insignificant thing to you is sacred to me. And so a promise Jesus would have us believe is that promise is never made without recognizing the presence of God. Here's an example. You may agree with this, but you, you, may, not as much, you may not as much agree with this as you think you do. And now let this be a test for you to test really if you really believe that God is over all and governs all and owns all things. If I ask you to tell me the truth about something and you had to place your hand on a Harry Potter book before swearing. And let's say that you lied to me and then I had you place your hand now on a, on a Bible and, and promise the same thing. And let's say you were found to be guilty and you lied to me, would you feel more guilty having lied on the Harry Potter book or on the Bible? Which is more serious? I imagine you would think, wow, I would feel a great, uh, a certain level of sobriety and, and, and guilt having lied while having my hand on the Bible. But a Harry Potter book, say, or, or some, other, uh, some other book, maybe you're thinking, oh, Harry Potter, that's like Bible, Harry Potter, that's like right there with me. Okay, pick something else, just another, another book. They should have the same attitude. Jesus is saying, what difference does it make? You should have the same attitude, swearing by any book and swearing by the Bible. If you say, I feel more serious of an offense when I swear by the Bible than I would another book, then you have the same attitude as the Pharisees. That function out of a works-based righteousness, that believe that God is concerned with our outward appearance and our outward behavior over a heart that truly worships Him and considers our word, the integrity of our word, to be of greatest importance no matter what we swear by, because it all belongs to God. If I were to ask you a question and you give me an answer and then ask you to put it in writing. So I say, would you guys, would you, will you come over for dinner today to our house? And, and you say, yes. And I say, can I get that in writing? You may pause an, a little bit longer and say, well, let me check with my wife first or let me see what we have going on. So you'll pause and think, well, this is serious. If you consider it your signature to be more serious than not signing anything, then you think like the Pharisees. You swear by certain things and not other things because your word can, is not as important if you don't, if you don't swear or don't uh, by God or if you don't put it in writing or put your signature to it. If I told you ahead of time that no surprise, no tricks, I'm not trying to do anything funny, tomorrow, starting 
at 7 a.m. You will have a device that follows you all around. It's going to be an audio device and it's going to be recording. And it will record every single thing that you say for a 24-hour period. Everything you say is going to be recorded. And after that period, everything you say is going to be posted online for everyone to listen to. Will you pay more attention to what you say tomorrow? Probably yes. That's already happening. Because God owns it all. He owns your thoughts. He hears every word you say and every promise that you make. And yet there is something that, that makes us feel like, well, if others knew about this, I would feel horrible. I would feel guilty. Well, God already knows. Jesus is wanting us to have a new attitude by, as it relates to what we say, to the promises we make, to the integrity of our word. He says it matters all the time. Not just if you have it in writing, not if you put your signature to it, not if you have your hand on the Bible, not if others are listening in. It matters all the time because I own it all. Jesus wants us to know the, re the reality already. He hears every promise. He hears every oath. He hears every word. He hears even the thoughts in our own hearts. And every oath that is given invites God himself to bear witness to it and to hold us accountable if we break it. Every time we make a promise, what we are effectively doing is saying, God, would you be my witness to this, that I would be condemned if I break this promise? If we knew that, I bet we would promise far fewer things. Jesus' desire is to transform our attitude regarding the integrity of our word. It's about the integrity of our word. It's about cultivating trust. It's about honoring God. It's about practicing an attitude that, that God is listening all the time. Not out of fear, but out of joy and a desire to, to know Him, to love Him, and to enjoy Him. He is the God of truth and purity. And there is nowhere we can go where we are not accountable to God, even in our thoughts. This is the attitude that the Pharisees didn't have. This is the attitude that you might even have. It's so easy to have this attitude, thinking, well, if I swear by one thing over another, it's more important. But it all belongs to the Lord. And so we ought to be very careful with what we promise. We ought to be very careful with the words that we choose. We ought to be very careful in committing to something that someone asks us to commit to. We ought to be very careful and patient when, when we are uh, called to give witness to a testimony and to bear truth to the facts. And so what do we, what do, we do in light of this? Because here's the attitude for the integrity of our word. But what, what, would, what would God desire for us to practice in our daily life? And, and well, that's easy. That's the easy practice. Don't ever make a promise ever again. Well, and not too far from the truth that he commands, Jesus says this, and look at this together, and this is our second point, the new practice for the integrity of our word. Jesus says, do not take an oath at all. Now, he could stop here and he could put a period, but you'll notice that it's not a period, it's a comma, and then he goes on to speak. He says, there are some who would say, you, you want to know my secret for never breaking a promise? Don't ever make one. You want to know how I never lie? I never, I never ever make a promise. But it's true that not only permitted to make oaths, God commands us to make oaths many times. And often we're called to give an account by others related to various things. So Jesus goes on to say, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And so Jesus isn't saying 
exhaustively, don't ever take an oath. He's saying, do not take an oath at all, comma, but if you do, let it simply be yes or no. He is advocating a practice for, for all Christians, for all of his disciples, that our yes and no be words that carry with it such integrity, such weight, that it requires, our, our oath would require nothing to back it up at all. What he's designing for Christians is that Christians would have the kind of integrity of our word that we could give our word to someone and they would not even ask for our signature. They wouldn't ask for us to place our hand on the Bible. They would not have to ask us twice. They would not have to ask us to swear by, by a dead relative or to cross our heart and hope to die and stick a needle in our eye. They would trust our word and they say, you are a person of integrity. I need nothing to back this up. Is that you? Is that your kind of integrity? Of your word. We should do what we say and, and say what we do. We should say what we mean and we should mean what we say. And that alone will cause our words to carry unquestioned credibility. It's a habit. He's calling his people into a habit of integrity. He's advocating a, a practice for Christians that our yes and no would be words of such high integrity they require no oath to back it up. It says, phrase, uh, the phrase, if you start a sentence like this, if someone asks you something and you say, yes, but, whatever is going to follow is going to be evil. If you say, no, but, anything that follows will be evil. He says, do not add anything to it. Simply give your answer and stand by it and be truthful in what you say. You need not to explain yourself. Your yes should be enough. Your no should be enough. Proverbs 10, 19 offers us this wisdom. It says, when words are many, transgression is lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Transgression is not lacking. Sorry, the important word there. Not <laughs> lacking. <laughs> let our words be few and let them be important and let them speak to the truth. Let's look at some examples for how to practice the integrity of our word. And some of these will be hopefully humorous and some of them will hit to the right between your eyes. Uh, do you speak differently at church than the way you speak in in uh, social environments? Do you speak differently at church than the way you speak at work? Or when you're celebrating on the weekend, when you're in leisure? Do you say one thing and, and do another? If you talk to me different because I'm a pastor, and you talk differently to your neighbor because he's not, you're lacking in integrity of your word and misunderstand the presence of God in your life. One of the things that I uh, dwell on most, maybe, that I, I that I don't particularly care for is when I go golfing, and I love going golfing with new people and strangers often, and sometimes there'll be a friend that will invite somebody uh, uh, to that group, and, and, and I like to spend as much time as possible never, not telling them what I do for a living, and just see how they act, right? And there's a lot of swearing, and there's a lot of perverse talk, and they say, so what do you do? Enough of me, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor, and then they, and then they just they spend the next half hour apologizing. <laughs> sorry for saying that word. I'm sorry for talking that way about women. And it's as if there's something about swearing or talking in my presence that is greater than God, God's presence in their life all the time. There's nothing special about me. There's nothing special about my authority. And God would have us to know and to, to believe that he is with us all the time, that his presence is with us, and that he hears every word we say. We should be the same person no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, whether it's a high-powered business meeting or whether, we're, whether we are spending time with a trusted friend, our words should be important and mean something and be truthful. We should be the same 
in public and in private. How about the integrity of your word regarding, uh, say, social engagements? You're invited to dinner, you agree to it, and you say, oh yes, we'll love to be there, and then you hop in the car with your spouse, and the first thing you says is, okay, we gotta come up with something to get out of this. <laughs> Maybe you, you will do that today. That will send you straight to hell. <laughs> no, just kidding. Well, without Jesus, it will. What about expressing frustrations in arguments? The integrity of your word, how does it apply to expressing frustrations when you're stressed? How many times in your arguments with a spouse or a roommate or a friend or a coworker, listen how many times you say the word always and never. You always do dot, dot, dot. Is that true? I mean, is that true that that person always does that? What about you never? Are you being truthful in your word by saying you always and never? What about truthfulness and integrity of your word in the marketplace? You're selling a used car, the buyer asks, how does it run? And you say, oh, it purrs like a kitten. And what you mean is that it purrs like a kitten and coughs up a hairball every other Friday <laughs> and leaves you stranded at your office. But otherwise, it's really great. Because you think, what do you say? You say, well, it's a, it's a buyer beware market. If they want to know how the car is, then let them do their research. You brush it off and say, let, the, let, let, it, let it rest on them if they want to figure out if it's good or not. But are you truthful to your word? Do you give an honest testimony? Consider promises to pay, whether it's real estate and promising to fulfill mortgage obligations to the best of your ability, or borrowing money from others that you never intend to pay back. What about in parenting? What does the integrity of our word have to do with parenting? Um, author and Bible teacher Jen Wilkins says this, we want our children to trust our words and to trust our word. Cultivating that trust begins at an early age and requires intentionality. It also requires great effort. Many parents are pretty good at sticking to their word when they say yes, and not so good when they say no. Can I have a piece of candy if I eat all my dinner? Yes, you can. And then they eat all their dinner, and they say, can I have candy now? He's like, you know what, it's getting too late. And they say, but you said yes. And then you say, well, I did say yes. Here, you're right, I did say yes, here's some candy. But we don't do that when we say no. No, you cannot. But you said no. <laughs> well, I did say no. Thank you. They never, they never say that. They never hold us accountable to the no. If I didn't stay in my room, you said I wasn't allowed to have dessert. And now you're giving me dessert, and you said no. They don't talk like that. Here's what's happening when a parent issues a no command and our child does not obey. When we issue a no command, parents, and the child does not obey, they are asking us an important question. Are you a person of your word? How many times is that answer no? When we say no, do we stand by our word? And maybe the, maybe the application here is that we should think a little bit more when we do give out commands, that when we do get out our yeses and nos, and that's what Jesus would have us say. Don't just say yes and no all the time, carelessly, and, and hoping that people will listen and obey. Be thoughtful, be careful. It takes a great amount of effort, great amount of tensionality. But when you say yes, mean yes. When you say no, mean no and stick to it. Our children are asking us, is your word important? Can I trust your word? And we compromise that every day. What about casual conversations? You know, if you habitually exaggerate what actually happened, you'll, you'll lose credibility. 
If you habitually talk in hyperboles and, and exaggerations and, and, and puff up the stories for, for dramatic effect, people will stop trusting in your word. You will become a person that loses credibility and says, well, I can't, I can't trust them in what they're saying. I don't know if they're telling me the truth according to specifics of things that actually happened or if they're just elaborating on the story for their own effect. People will stop eventually listening to you, even if you have good things to say. You'll lose credibility, it'll decay your relationships, it will destroy your integrity, it will shipwreck your faith. And after a while, no one will believe you, no one will trust you. And to learn from one of our, uh, something spoken to probably our most famous liar of all time, right, Pinocchio, here's what the blue fairy has to say. A lie keeps growing and growing until it is as plain as the nose on your face. Eventually, what we think we are hiding, what we think we are being clever, it is plain to others that we are deceiving, that we are lying, that we are not trusted. It destroys relationships. Everything we say is important. Our words are not only important when we're dressed up and giving a presentation or in a courtroom or being recorded. It's important all the time. Here's a question, another thing in casual conversations. Here's a question I get asked often, probably every day. Are you going to leave the office by five? And here, and here is a lie that I give often. <laughs> yes. And if it were not by, for the grace of God, that will, that will send me to hell every day of the week. It's like, well, come on, you're not lying. Well, instead, I could say something different. So my wife is asking me, will you be home at this time? And I say yes. And if I'm habitually not home in that time, I am not... I'm not telling her, you can trust my word. You can trust my, my yes. You can trust my no. But instead, I can say, I can say this is, I really hope to be. I have a meeting that should end on time. If it doesn't, I'll send you a text or give you a call if I'm going to be late. But I understand this is important to you, and I'll do everything that I can to be there when I say I will be there. You see, there's other things that we can say if we just stop and think and pause and say, I want my words to mean something. I don't want to just throw out a no or throw out a yes. I want to be intentional. I want to be a person of integrity. Likewise, we should not casually give out our yes or no that we don't care enforcing. There are some times that oaths and, and vows should be taken. We give marriage vows. And it, this passage should give some, some great thought and sobriety to the vows that we do give when we are asking God to be a witness for those oaths and vows that we take when we promise to do something. It's not a coincidence that Jesus speaks, I don't believe, uh, it's a coincidence that he speaks about the importance of vows right after talking about the importance of marriage. We take vows uh, of, in church membership. We want you, as a member of our church, we want you to, to faithfully and, 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 and carefully understand what it means to be a faithful member of Holy Cross, that you would not just agree to support the work of our church in love and support and fellowship and using of your gifts and the, and the, the joy of your presence without, without meaning that you will actually do that. Vows and oaths are important when required by lawful authorities. Yes, you have to tell the truth to police officers and parole officers and judges and magistrates of different kinds. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. We took some oaths even this morning for the baptism. How far do we take this? Because we could go nuts on this, right? How far and how careful should we be? Is there, isn't there a common vernacular that we use throughout our day that is, that do we need to have such scrutiny just to the common way that we speak? Should everything that we say, even common in a common tongue, in a common vernacular, be taken as a lie? Well, I remember there was this commercial, uh, I think it was, I think it was a... Sorry, I missed 
I said it was a commercial. And <laughs> you all feel like robots this morning for some reason. There's, there's, a, there's a commercial, I think it was a Geico commercial, and, and it was depicting Honest Abe Lincoln. Do you remember this? It was Abe Lincoln and his wife. And, and Honest Abe could not tell a lie, which we, we know. And he turns to his wife. His wife says to him, does this dress make my butt look fat? Right? And he stands there just struck, and he's not able to tell a lie. He just stands there dumbfounded, and then she just leaves the room furious, right? What should he have done? I mean, he should have just said, honey, your identity is not rooted in your looks. It is rooted in the love of Jesus for you. I mean, that would have been a great commercial, I think. <laughs> God's unchanging love. But see, so how far do we take this? There is a, there's a common way that we speak, that we should not feel like paralyzed, that Everything that comes out of my mouth needs to be so careful. There's a common way of speaking that is not in question here. We're not lying uh, when it's 1 o'clock in the afternoon and we haven't had lunch yet and we say, I am starving to death. We should not be held accountable to that. Of like, well, you are not telling the truth. You're not giving good testimony of, of your actual like, biological, physical you know, existence here. You're not starving to death. You may be hungry. And I, just, I really want you to ask God for forgiveness on that. See, there's a common way of speaking that we should not get tripped up about. Did we sin? I don't think so in that situation. We may be a little dramatic and may need a Snickers, but we don't, we don't think we, we sinned. But the principle here is don't throw out your yes quickly. Do not throw out your no quickly, but use your yes and no so sparingly. And when you do use it, count the cost. Count the cost of what it would do to your integrity, your credibility, when you, if you break that knowing that the attitude we have when we take an oath is that Jesus is present, that God owns everything, even in private and in public matters. It doesn't matter what we swear, by what we swear, uh, He governs it all. We're to mean what we say and say what we mean and keep our word and speaking the truth and never giving false witness, no matter how small the stakes, because according to Jesus, there are no small stakes. There are no small matters. God is God over all. And that's what he would have the Pharisees understand, is that, yeah, when they say, well, I did lie, but it was really just a small thing, he would say, there are no small things. There are no white lies. There are no small dishonesties. The Sermon on the Mount is, is heavy, isn't it? It's, it's discouraging in a sense because none of us do a good job of obeying these commands that, that we're called to obey. Uh, none of us do a good job of obeying the commands found in the Sermon on the Mount. When it comes to anger and lust and, and uh, failure to, to, to be honest, I mean, we all really fail at this. It leaves us at times overwhelmed, and I understand that if you feel that way. He tells us things like, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And it, it kind of knocks us over like with a sledgehammer. It knocks us out and makes us feel like, well, then what hope is there for me? I am such a failure. And line by line, we read through the Sermon on the Mount and we feel just like, this is overwhelming. This is crushing to me. And let's end the right way, as I always intend to do and always hope to do. It, I have no intention of, uh, and neither does Jesus, in my opinion, of having any intention in saying, here is what you should do. Now go out and try your best to do it. And that is not my closing argument and that's not Jesus' closing argument. Go out, try your best, Change the way you talk to people and just do a really good job. Come on, you're just, you guys need to do better. He's not saying that and neither am I. And so here is this new hope that he offers to us, a new hope for the integrity of our word. Why is this so hard? Why is it so hard to be people, men and women and children of our word? 
Why is it so hard to, to, have, to, have like, uh, to count the cost for our yes and no? Why is it so hard to be uh, men and women of, of, of few words? And when we do give a promise, we keep it. Well, I look at verse 33, and again, it, it, it reads this. Do not swear falsely. Do not swear falsely, but, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Perform here. This verse is a, I believe it's a pointer to our hope. It points to the hope that we have for those who, who find themselves in need of forgiveness in this area. And at first, it's, it's a really tough thing to, to read. What does it mean to perform to the Lord? Well, literally, it means to pay to the Lord, to pay specifically a debt, to pay what you owe God, and you owe Him perfect honesty. Why is it so hard to tell the truth sometime? Why is it so hard to pay to the Lord what we owe Him? Because it costs a lot. It will cost you a lot to be honest. To be honest and to maintain your word will often be very costly. Sometimes it's costly financially and, and in monetary ways. Sometimes it's costly in relationships. We desire so strongly to please other people that we maintain and to maintain favor in their minds that we will, we will say whatever we need to say. We will break any promise for them to like us. It costs us our reputation. If we're honest with someone, it may cost us a friendship. Out of fear, we lie, and in lying, we fear that honesty will cost us a relationship. So we lie to preserve that relationship, because if that person really know the, knew the truth, they may abandon us, they may leave us, and I don't want them to leave me. Sometimes honesty costs us comfort, because it's never easy to come clean on a lie that we've committed. Sometimes it will cost you financially. Being honest might make you lose a deal. It may make you lose commission. It may make you have to pay more taxes. Telling the truth is not always comfortable. And we can get to a place where we are willing to be honest because we care more about our integrity and convenience than convenience. It's possible that we can care more about our integrity than our convenience. And when God calls us to be truthful, He never tells us that we will also, that that will be accompanied by comfort. He never promises that the pursuit of honesty will be a very comfortable ride. And that He promises to be with us, to strengthen us, and to encourage us. And well, because of this, we need a new hope. And that hope is, in found, is found in seeing how Jesus dealt with the integrity of His Word. In John 18, when the scribes and Pharisees demanded Jesus His crucifixion, uh, for claiming to be king of the Jews, God promised, God's promised savior, Pontius Pilate, the governor, uh, asked him, is what the people are saying, are they, is it true? They're calling you the king of the Jews and they're killing you because of that, or are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, it's for this reason I have come, to bear witness to the truth. How easy is it? Put yourself in Jesus' shoes and he is about to be crucified and they are going to kill him. They are going to exercise what modern times in Rome would have been the most excruciating, physically, emotionally painful thing that any human being could go through. How easy would it have been for Jesus to simply say, no. Hey, are you who they say you are? They want to kill you. Is this true? It would have been so easy for him to say, no. And then they would have just said, okay, well then get out of here. Like, go live your life. But he says, yes. 
And he says, this is why I've come, to bear witness to this truth. This is why I was sent, to be a truth teller, to have integrity of word, no matter how uncomfortable, even if it cost me my very life. And prior to this, in John chapter 8, Jesus would speak to the crowds and he says, he says to the Jews that believed in him, he said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The hope that we have is that Jesus will set us free. That the truth will set us free. God looks into your life and mine. He sees your hatred. He sees your lust. He sees your lying and cheating heart. I don't, mind, I don't mean to sound like a country song there. He sees all of this every day. He sees your hatred that you have for your brothers and sisters. He sees your hatred you have for your enemies. He sees the lust that you have for others. He sees your lies. And He loves you anyway. He loves you anyway. Jesus was sent to die because of Satan's lie in the Garden of Eden. When Satan lies, and in John 8 he even tells us that Satan is the father of lies, that he is the father of lies, in, him, in whom there is all deceit, there is no honesty. And we see that in the first pages of Scripture. Satan comes onto the scene and he starts to lie to Adam and Eve. Did God really say? He starts to put in seeds of doubt and deception. He bears false witness to what God has said. Jesus died for every one of your sins. He died for every one of your lies. Jesus died to set us free from the power of the father of lies, the devil. He died because you and I are liars. Jesus died for the white lies that you and I commit. He dies for the false testimony we give. We often think that he dies for those big sins, right? He dies for the, uh, he dies for the, the murder, the, he dies for the adultery, he dies uh, for these, these big sins that we, that we think in our mind. But he dies for the simple lies. And we were able to live free. We were able to live free in Christ because of His grace that is full of integrity. We were able to live free because Jesus kept His word. Because His yes was yes and His no was no. And if we desire freedom from our sins, the sins of, of lying and deception, we must repent of our sins, repent of our attempt to live below the line of Scripture, repent of our powerless attempts to be good people, repent of our attempts to to please others more than to being people of our integrity. And then we rest in His integrity. We rest in His character, in His perfect righteousness. And when we do that, and, and only when we do that, we will cross over from being, doing the works of the devil to doing the works of God. Because Jesus says, if you lie, if you are a liar, you are doing the works of the devil. You are fulfilling His agenda, His mission, you are glorifying the devil by being a liar because he is the father of lies. But when we repent of that and become people of our word, we are doing the work of God. Listening to the voice of Jesus, being strengthened by his love and growing into his image. God prizes the truth. He prizes the truth. He himself is truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This means that untruth, that dishonesty, that false witness, these things are the very opposite of, being, of His being, the very opposite of His character. Lying is contrary to Jesus' very essence. Jesus says that He alone is the way, 
the truth and the life, and He is the truth. And so since He, who never lied, having died because of our lies, is able to set us free from our lies. Do you get that? Do you understand that? Jesus, who never lied, died for our lies to set us free from our lives. Consider the promises of God. So in this interesting search, and, and people have tried to, to, to note all the promises of God and how many promises there are. There's a consensus that it's at least 3,000 promises of God in the, old, in the New and Old Testament. Somebody has even come up with 8,000 promises in the Bible that we can find. God saying yes or no and promising certain things. How is he able to keep them all? That's a lot of promises for a God who says, don't make an oath. We see God making several, several thousand. How is he able to keep it? All of his promises. All of his promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is, that is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to, the to God for His glory. You see, D Jesus didn't just die merely for the forgiveness of our sins. As if that were not enough by itself. It, it is enough by itself. But He died to rescue us from sin, but also to give us the 8,000 promises of God that He has made for us. Why did Jesus die for, for us? So that God's promises would be certain so that they would come true so that when we read scripture and God tells us something we can utter our amen to the glory of God when, when a promise comes across in scripture we can say without a doubt amen so be it thank you for accomplishing this because your yes will be yes your no will be no when you promise that I when I turn from my sin and trust in Jesus for salvation I know it will happen when you tell me that I will be hidden in your love forever and nothing can take me away, that I'm not condemned in my sin, but I'm forgiven in Christ, we can say amen for that happening. Jesus died, the, he paid, he died to pay the price for our dishonesty so that we could claim his promises. And in return, we're given the, the privilege of uttering our amen to the glory of God. You, know, you want to know what that means, to utter our amen to the glory of God? It means that whenever we hear a command in Scripture, when we hear the God's command, uh, that God commands honesty and says, only the pure of heart enter into the kingdom of heaven, we can say, amen. Because Jesus, who never lied, died for my lies so that I could be set free from my lies. Not because of my perfect record or character, but because Jesus does have a perfect record and character, and we are united to him by faith. Let's trust in Jesus, who is the truth. Let's pray together.